0: Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 10 to 28. I had to actually write a paper on this exact passage uh, when I was at Union in my undergrad days for Dr. Green. Um, I don't remember what grade he gave me, because I was like 20 at the time. Right? That's been a few years now. But I am fairly confident, because I've had conversations with him since then, that it was probably the most brilliant piece of writing that he's ever read. Um, That is complete sarcasm. It definitely was not. But but all that to say, uh, hear the word of the Lord uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. And then we will pray once more. Matthew writes, he says, And he called the people to him and said to him, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith, be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for our worship this morning. Thank you for today. Thank you for calling us out of our beds, Lord, and into the gathered bride of your church, Lord, here at Christ Community. Lord, thank you for our worship, Lord. Thank you for song and confession of sin and of faith, Lord. Thank you for hearing your word, and Lord, we pray, God, that as we continue to worship, it would be in spirit and in truth. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Well, for those that uh, were here last week or have listened to the passage um, or the the sermon audio from last week, I, I made a comment last week and really stressed that A lot of times we make the secondary primary when it comes to looking at Scripture, right? We look at this application aspect a lot of times before we actually look at what's really going on. But today we're actually going to flip that on its head because Jesus actually does it for us in this text. Um, He actually makes this aspect of, here's what the Word of God means to you as one of my people. And he does it really by weaving a thread through this entire chapter. Uh, that centers around really two questions that are brought before him. And the first question is very direct, and it's this. What is it that defiles a person? And the second question then it actually implies the opposite then. Okay, well, what defiles a person? Well, then what makes a person pure? What cleans a person? Now, I'm sure, you know, just thinking about this, uh, we probably, most of us in here probably already have an answer that's forming in our minds, partly because Jesus has just told us But the answer to both of those questions, Jesus tackles them head on in this entire chapter. And what brings these questions to the forefront of his ministry at this point in his life and in his ministry is the same thing that usually always challenges him in his his ministry, and that is the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, thinking about this question, what is it that defiles a person? We could give them the benefit of the doubt if we wanted to. And assume that they are bringing these questions up because they are genuinely curious, right? Jesus, you're claiming these things, we got a question for you. So to better understand the reading that's in our bulletins for today, I want you, if you don't mind, grab a Bible, if you have one in your lap or in the pew in front of you or on your device, and make your way to Matthew 15 because I want to look at a couple of verses at the beginning of the chapter that really set up the entire chapter. So we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 because, again, these two verses really inform the entirety of Matthew 15. Listen to what Jesus says here, So, or what Matthew writes. He says, Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Okay. Now, again, let's play ignorant for a minute, right? At face value, this seems like A very innocent question, right? This, even for us today, especially post-COVID-19, we're thinking, this is just good sanitation, right? Why don't you wash your hands before you eat? How could Jesus complain about simple, good hygiene? Well, if you've got your Bibles open, we're not going to read all of it, but if you were to just quickly read through verses 3 through 9, right before we get to our text, you see in verse 3, Jesus snaps back at them really quickly. And he says, okay, well, why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition this is a moment where if you were there somebody would go ooh, or you say get the ice the pharisees just got burned right i mean he he slaps them hard with this question but the, but but for our point right how does this inform then this idea of defilement and purity well again let's let's try to grasp the context because their question actually helps us here they ask him again this question why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders Again, this sets the whole context for the chapter. Traditions are not always a bad thing. Right? We each have family traditions, right? Sharon and I have a tradition in our family for Christmas morning um, that is kind of a blended natural. Really what we do is we do both of our own individual family traditions that we did growing up, and now we just do them both, which is we open presents while eating cinnamon rolls and drinking orange juice, which is a lot of sugar, but it is what it is, right? It's Christmas morning. You do what you do. But then we go to my parents' house where we eat a whole lot of bologna and eggs and bacon and all this kind of pork because my parents cook a lot of pork, right? So we have a huge breakfast on Christmas morning. It's just a family tradition. But we also have national traditions, right? We have Independence Day where we celebrate uh, the writing of the Declaration of Independence. We have uh, Veterans Day. We have Memorial Day, right? We have good national traditions to remember our history. But we also have our own church traditions, right? I mean, think about this. Could you imagine... A year where we didn't celebrate Jesus' feast. Now, I mean, obviously, barring any horrible circumstance that would preclude us from doing that, that would just seem weird, right? It would be odd if we didn't celebrate Advent or Epiphany or Lent. I mean, this is is just part of our DNA here at Christ Community Church, right? So we have our own church traditions as well. But where traditions become an idol is when we begin to elevate the priority of our traditions above the commandments of God. And these traditions that the Pharisees are referring to here in Matthew chapter 15 verse 2 are not referencing the Torah. They're not referencing the law of God. Rather, these are traditions that originated from previous generations of Pharisees, primarily after the return from Babylonian captivity. These were teachings that commented on the law of God, but they and they interpreted the law of God. Now again... Just for context, right? There's nothing wrong with commenting on Scripture. There's nothing wrong with interpreting Scripture. This is exactly what a pastor and a preacher and a theologian do every single week when they stand before the congregation. You read Scripture, you study it over the week, you interpret it, and then you comment on it it for the people of God so that way they understand it and can live their lives as faithful believers in Christ. But here's where it starts to get squirrely. These Pharisees, and this is Jesus' point in verse 3, They had moved from commenting on the law of God and interpreting the law of God to extending those laws, particularly the laws surrounding the purification rites for priests from Exodus chapter 20, to extending them to every single ordinary Jewish citizen. They go beyond not only the law of God, but they go beyond the expectations of the law of God. And the Pharisees viewed these traditions as having authority equal to or even beyond the authority of the law of God itself. Jesus even says as much. He says it in verse 6. It's the second part part of that verse. Listen to what he says. He says, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the law of God or the word of God. Now, interestingly, these traditions were largely oral in Jesus' day but they would later be codified sometime in the late 2nd century. And we know this as the Mishnah. But there's one tradition in the Mishnah called the Yadayim, which speaks about this purification washing that these Pharisees would have been very familiar with. So let me read it to you, because it's really quite fascinating. It says this. It says, if a man pours water over the one hand with a single rinsing, then his hand is clean. But if he pours water over both hands with only a single rinsing, then they are unclean, Unless he pours water over them for a quarter longer or more. Okay. Right? What you see though is is and you see this all throughout the gospels, the Pharisees have rigorously applied these rules to themselves. There's no problem with that. You want to discipline yourself, you want to take a long, take up a, take up a discipline, you want to fast, you want to do these things. That's perfectly fine, do that, great. But where they began to err is where they placed their expectation and their enforcement of those disciplines upon the general population. And this is what sets the entire context for all of Matthew 15. It's what sets, sets this, this confrontation between him and the Pharisees in this section. So here's where our thread, right? So here's the thread. Let's see how defilement and purity are woven throughout this text. So beginning with those first two sentences that are in your bulletin, these are verses 10 and 11. Jesus says this, and so again, he's had this confrontation with the Pharisees, and so then he calls the people to himself, and he says, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This is what defiles a person. So he now begins to answer their challenge directly by teaching the whole people. Again, rules about ceremonial washing before eating might seem irrelevant to us in our day, right? Why do we care about that, right? But Jesus knows, though, that this is really just a surface-level issue, right? That this goes much deeper. He knows that we need instruction, and we need instruction on what real defilement looks like and what real purity looks like. And again, Peter will call this a parable in verse 15, but Jesus' meaning is not meant to be hidden like it is in most of his parables. He states very plainly in verse 10, he says, Look, everyone, you need to come and you need to hear and you need to understand. This Greek word for understanding implies doing. It it implies a posture of discipleship in Christ. He tells us, look, simply hearing isn't good enough, right? You need to come, you need to hear, but you also need to comprehend. He says, We must have faith in my in his instruction. And then we must be obedient to do his instruction. He tells us in John 14, he says, If you love me, you will keep, you will obey, you will do my commandments. So hear and understand. So he says this, again in verse 10, he says, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This is what defiles a person. Mosaic law says that it is absolutely possible to be defiled by touching anything unclean or by eating unclean food. It tells us this in Leviticus verse eleven, chapter 11. Excuse me. Mark actually tells us in Mark chapter 7, Mark keeps that he has this exact same story. He says, at this moment, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, Matthew doesn't give us that context because, again, I think Matthew is reminding us of a deeper meaning behind this passage. This Greek word for defiled literally means to render common or to make common. So for the Jewish mind, again, this is really helpful, right, trying to get into their mindset To the Jewish mind, to eat something that was common to all humanity would make them ceremonially unclean and therefore unable to participate in the worship of Yahweh until they had ritualistically purified themselves. But Jesus is stating here very explicitly in verse 11 that it's not what you consume, but rather what you expel that proves that you are defiled. And the contrast here is between those words into and out of. It is not what goes into your mouth, but what comes out of your mouth. This proves that you are defiled. A little further down he'll start to clarify. So Peter asks him, he says, Look, explain this to us, and Jesus kind of snaps at him a little bit. He says, How do you not understand this already? I was not being cryptic. This is very plain. And so he says in verse seventeen, he says, Do you not see that what goes whatever goes into the mouth? goes, uh, passes through the stomach, and then is expelled. Jesus says here, he says, look, even if, right, even if by random happenstance you happen to eat something unclean, if you happen to ingest bacon-wrapped shrimp, shrimp, excuse me, well, don't worry, right? It passes harmlessly through your digestive system and then is expelled from the body. In verse 17, this word expelled in the Greek literally means expelled into the latrine, right? So you take from that exactly what that means, right? But Jesus, he's saying, look, this is basic biology, right? Your body works this way. You eat something, it's got to go somewhere and it comes out. But then he declares twice here in this passage. He says, he says, it's not what, what defiles a person is not what goes in, but what comes out because what comes out of the mouth comes out of the heart in verse 18. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. So it's not things like food going into the mouth that produces defilement, but those thoughts, those words, those actions that proceed out of the heart itself. This is what Paul refers to in his letters as the inner man. The Greek word that Jesus uses here for heart is the Greek word cardia, where we get our term cardio. But the Greeks associated the heart as the center of the whole person. This, this is the inner man that Paul is referencing. Or what displays the true character of an individual. So what one speaks comes from their heart. It comes from the whole person. It's, it's from there that we prove how truly defiled we really are. Evil thoughts and words and deeds defile because sin is progressive and it hardens our hearts. It hardens the inner man. And as the heart, as the inner person, as our imagination, as our soul is hardened... Sin continues to tighten its grip, and it metastasizes like a cancer. And so Jesus tells us that words and thoughts and actions are the true measure of our spiritual condition, not our external piety alone. And then in verse 20, what he does is he doubles back to to reference all of this. He bookends this whole exchange between the Pharisees and his disciples And he goes back to that initial confrontation in verses 1 and 2, and he says again, to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Focusing only on ceremonial washing before eating misses the true reality and purpose behind every single religious ritual. External rituals can do nothing to purify the heart. They are only part of the equation because their purpose is to point to point us to the one who can purify our heart which is God himself. That's Jesus' point. But that's also why, in the rest of this text, we have this example of the faith of this Canaanite woman, because she is a direct example of this principle. So listen to the next two verses. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, "Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon." Now again, let's, let's back up a little bit, because there's a little bit of time that passes here, right? We see he withdrew from there. There's a pattern in Jesus's ministry that we see through all the gospels, but particularly in Matthew. Where what he will do is he will follow a period of, of miracles with, or, or healings, with teaching, and then he will retreat. And he'll retreat for prayer and for rest. Now we saw this last week, right? We see right after the teaching and then the feeding of the 5,000 that Chris preached on a couple of weeks ago, Jesus immediately retreats up a mountain to pray. And then he comes to the disciples walking on the water. Well, that same pattern is holding here. He, he's been challenged by the Pharisees on this idea of defilement and cleanliness and purity. So he does some teaching on it. And then he retreats away. He actually retreats this region of Tyre and Sidon. This teaching that happens on defilement and purity happens around the Sea of Galilee. So now he goes about 30 miles away. So imagine going, you know, to like Selmer or something, right? That's about as far away as he walks, right? He gets a good distance away. But the context of everything of this defilement and purity is still the same, the thread is still there. So notice very quickly that whatever withdrawing he's doing or retreating that he had hoped for is quickly interrupted. Because Matthew begins here in verse 22 with this word, behold, he's saying, look, pay attention to this, because this is going to be extraordinary. Jesus is hoping to retreat, but it's interrupted very, very quickly. He's hoping to get somewhere where nobody knows who he is. And so notice the details and what they tell us about this thread. First, it says this. It's mentioned that she is a Canaanite woman. Now, some of your translations might read Gentile. They might read Greek. They might read Syrophoenician. But all of these direct our focus immediately back on this whole controversy with the Pharisees over purification. The fact that this woman is a Gentile serves to highlight the thread of defilement and purity. Again, he is in the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is a Greek region. This is not a Jewish region. Second, the Pharisees and the scribes had just accused Jesus of being a violator of tradition. But this Gentile woman immediately addresses him as the son of David. This is profound. right? If you've never noticed this detail before, this, this, this is one of those moments where when you're reading it, you, you have to kind of roll back from your desk and go, wow. Son of David is a messianic term. We're all, very, we're all very aware of it because looking around the room, most of us are very biblically literate. We read son of David all the time and we move on from it. But Son of David is a Messianic term, and not just any old Messianic term. It is a Jewish Messianic term. Remember, this woman is a Greek. She's a Gentile. She knows who Jesus is. And she also believes him to be the Redeemer, and her Redeemer. Both the hope of Israel, because she knows she's not Jewish, but also she knows he is the hope of the world. And we see this in a third interesting detail, just in this one verse alone. We see her belief. She calls him son of David, and then she begs him for mercy. And notice her mercy is completely selfless. She takes her daughter's suffering as her own. Her daughter is oppressed by a demon. But she pleads, son of David, have mercy on me. Fourth, we see her faith. Because she persists in begging for his help. In the Greek, there's a term here where she said, Matthew writes, he says, from that region came out and she was crying. This term crying, this, 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 we understand this as constantly ongoing. Right? This wasn't like she saw Jesus walking down the streets of Tyre and screamed out, son of David, have mercy on me, and then watched him walk on by. She started to pursue him. Basically, she started to stalk him and said, Jesus, help me. You are the Redeemer. Help me. Please help me. And we actually see that it was persistent because the disciples get annoyed. In the next verse, it says, but he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, which is the same phrase used for this woman, begged him, saying, send her away. She is crying out after us, Jesus, you've got to shut this woman up. You've got to stop her. Tell her to be quiet and go home. Now we see, though, Jesus, he initially ignores this woman's pleas for mercy. He he doesn't pay attention to her. And then when he finally does, he pretty much calls her a dog. He's, he's, He's not subtle with this. Now I want to state a couple things up front as we start to explore this. I don't think Jesus is being hateful. The immediate reaction of our own culture would be to say, Jesus is being hateful of this woman. He's dismissing her as a human being. He's being racist and bigoted. But that's not what's happening here. At least not completely. Because I think what's happening here is a lot deeper. Because first, what it's showing us is showing us that there, is, there was, very much intentionally, a strong division between Jews and Gentiles. But it also stresses... The purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry. So listen to what he says to her. Send her away. She's crying out after her. Said, Jesus, you got to shut her up. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice, he does not answer the woman. He answers the disciples. They're begging him to make her quiet. And he says, look, this is what I was done. This is what I'm doing. I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was not sent to her. What he stresses here is that the reason for his earthly ministry was for the centrality of Israel in God's plan of salvation. Paul tells us exactly this at the beginning of Romans 9. But we do know that God's plan of salvation in Christ would later be extended to the whole world after the resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But even still, within this exchange, Jesus shows us, he says, look, the grace of God also... Can and does extend to the Gentiles. So, what this scene does, this verse right here, it makes this a turning point from a Jewish based mission to the universal mission to all the nations. We see this exact same thing happening in John chapter 12. Some Greeks seek out Jesus, and he immediately responds and says, My hour has come. It's time. But I don't want to miss the tree for the forest here. Because the point here, as it was with his rebuttal against the Pharisees, it runs deeper than our initial reactions to his perceived snub of this woman. Because we can easily miss a very profound detail in this, and it's within the geographical setting of this thread. right? This thread of defilement and its setting. Jesus had healed Gentiles before this event. We see it in Matthew chapter 8. A centurion seeks him out because his servant is lying dying at home. And Jesus heals this centurion servant from a distance, the same way he heals this woman's daughter. But Jesus had always, at least up until this point, healed Gentiles that he may have healed in Jewish territory. But here, Jesus heals a Gentile in a Gentile territory. Now, this may seem unimportant, but it really speaks volumes to this thread So this woman here, what she does is she comes and she falls on her knees. This phrase here doesn't mean in worship, it means in begging. It's the same phrase used for the disciples there, the verse before, where they beg him to send her away. She begs him for help. And so now he finally looks at her and addresses her and he says, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Again, this phrase seems hateful, it seems rude, and it seems downright racist to our mindset today. But there is a distinction being made here. Matthew's gospel is considered to be the most Jewish of all the gospels. Meaning that he is writing his gospel to the Jews to stress a certain point. And in keeping with this idea, this thread of defilement and purity, for a first century Jew, Gentiles were considered unclean. Just like dogs were considered unclean. Dogs were scavenging animals. They would eat things that were unclean food. And Gentiles were considered to be the exact same. And so while we may find this retort of Jesus is harsh and hard, this begging woman, here is where we get to, this is the whole point we've been building up to all morning. This begging woman picks up on his turn of a phrase, and she presses it for her advantage. She's persistent. And she displays her faith in him when she does it. And she says this, she says, Yes, Lord, yet even... The dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Again, this is it. This is the whole point of all of this. But it perfectly illustrates that lesson on defilement and purity. This woman knows exactly how she is viewed by every single person in Jewish society. She knows that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. That's why she calls him Son of David. She recognizes this truth. But she also knows that sometimes... Oftentimes, the grace and mercy of Yahweh overflows, much like how a breadcrumb will fall off of the table and into the mouth of an eagerly awaiting dog. Notice the language that she uses. She uses one phrase here that that points us out perfectly. In verse 27, she says, Yes, Lord, yet even. Notice she doesn't say but. She doesn't object to his point. She agrees with it. She doesn't even accuse Jesus of being hateful or racist or bigoted. But rather she's wise in her response. She's witty. She's quick in her response. She's, she's observant. And her response shows extreme faith. She notices that even though the children are fed first, meaning ethnic Israel, I get it, Jesus, you are the son of David. You are the Jewish redeemer. I get it. But I, I might be a dog, but I still get fed at some point. The dogs still get food. So similar to the centurion of Matthew 8, she doesn't argue that she has a right to Israel's covenanted mercies. That centurion showed the greatest faith in all of Israel that Jesus had witnessed. He said, look, I I am a master. I have these things. I tell people to go here. I tell people to go there. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. Okay. She doesn't argue that she has a right to Israel's covenanted mercies. She doesn't argue that the mysterious ways of God's election and justice are, un- are unfair. She simply recognizes Israel's special relationship to Yahweh while also recognizing that the Messiah and the grace of Yahweh through the Messiah also overflows to the Gentiles. This woman absolutely gets it. And Jesus knows that she gets it. And he knows that she not only has faith, but she has faith in the right direction. And he says this, O woman, great is your faith. So be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. He doesn't even go to her home because that would make him unclean. We see this in Acts 10 with Paul and the centurion there. Cornelius. But here is where the only time That somebody actually, quote-unquote, beats Jesus in a debate. It's the only time in all the Gospels. He concedes her point. He understands, not only do you get it, but you have great faith. And so he grants her request. And so here's what this woman's example teaches us. And this is what I think the point that God really wants us to get out of this text and, and really this thread that's running through Matthew 15 is that a heart that seeks to be pure and undefiled falls at the feet of Jesus and begs to receive his mercy and his grace. A heart that seeks to be pure and undefiled believes Jesus and believes his word. This woman has spent her entire life eating with ceremonially unclean hands and ceremonially unclean foods. She doesn't care. But she proves from her inner person, from her heart, that she is less defiled than the scribes and Pharisees because she recognizes the one who can purify the heart. Telling us that ritualistic and ceremonial cleanliness means nothing if your heart, if your mind, if your imagination, if your inner man is defiled. Only Christ can make us holy. The work and the ministry of Christ is to purify the heart and the whole person so that what comes out of the mouth isn't proof of defilement but proof of godliness. So like this woman, as we prepare to come to the table in the Eucharist together, let us fall before the feet of Christ and worship. Let us beg for his mercy and his grace. Fall at his feet in faith and trust and obedience and know that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin and know that you are no longer defiled, Christian, but you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.